great fire that burned across Europe and the whole world, including here in Logan, that is the Protestant Reformation. We're happy that the, God sent the Protestant Reformation. Amen? Amen? We're thankful for justification by faith alone. Amen? Amen. Glad I don't have to stand up here and address and speak Latin. I'm happy about that one. Yes, you're not having to come in and kneel down the front and do all sorts of hard works to try and get even an inkling of hope that God would, God would forgive you. You know, the, the good news, the gospel that the baptized people have believed, the good news that we gather around this morning here to celebrate, worship God for, and hear afresh is that Jesus and Jesus alone is the source of salvation and forgiveness for sinners. Amen? Amen. In his life, he earned the righteousness we could never live, pleasing God. In his death, he died in our place and for our sins, the death that we, we owed to God after, uh, both in our physical death and afterwards in our eternal death and condemnation as well. He rose from the dead to prove that he paid for our sins and he now rules and reigns, as we just heard, next to the Father from where he, friends, from where he pours out his mercy on all of his enemies, all sinners, all unforgiven people, all lost people, all non-Christians can be made one with God, can be loved by God, forgiven by God, and received and accepted by God now and into eternity because of Jesus' merits, because of his value, because of his love, because of his death in your place. So we love and receive and believe here at Hope Church. Amen? Amen? That is our prayer, that you would believe that and give your life to that. And having believed it, that you would become those who spread it, who carry it from shore to shore. So please be praying for the missionaries that go. Please be stirred in your heart as you think about uh, uh, us as we're gone. And of course, the future mission trips we'll do. Pray to the Lord whether or not you might be sent to, uh, to go uh, on short-term trips or indeed give your life to a people group to go and learn their language, translate books and Bibles and preach the gospel. We, we love mission. It's good to be a church on mission. Amen? Amen. Do any of you have a, a water fountain in your backyard? I'm, I'm just asking you to show off right now. I grew up with one, but it wasn't big fancy when it was a small, decaying, breaking one. Uh, uh, I don't know if you've ever had like a water fountain or feature in your backyard, but you know that if the water is not continually running, it grows algae. It grows moss. It actually becomes a cesspit where it's summer, you know, this Aussies, all of the mozzies come and infest and, uh, and uh, populate that and then spread and bite you in the middle of the night. That's, that's the, I, I, I hate mosquitoes. I think they're from Satan. The point is that where there is, where there is stagnation, where there is no movement, where there is, where there is a lack of direction and momentum, bad things grow. Stagnation, in fact, brings death. It is, it is uh, I believe it was David Livingston, the great missionary, who said that for a sick church, she needs to be put on a missionary diet. One of the first things you do to, 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 if you want to start dealing with the algae problem before the chemicals, before you call a guy in, before you waste a lot of time, just get the water moving and nine out of the ten problems will be solved. A church will corrode and a church will become insular and a church will start fighting about carpet colors and music styles and who we let in and all that sort of thing. The, the church does that when she is distracted from her mission, which is to reach every shore and every soul with the gospel of Jesus Christ that we may be saved through his blood. And so we go to the book of Acts to be reminding ourselves of that. Go to Acts chapter 4. This has been our practice over the last few weeks. It'll continue on into the, uh, probably the, the end of the term, the end of the week, which is to ask of the book of Acts as God's inspired book of church history in those early years, what means and what tools, what situations does God use to extend the kingdom of his son? What does Jesus do to build his church? 
as he said he would do, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. That's, that's all good and well to know in an, in an abstract truth and an objective reality. But then we want to say, since we're called to join that mission, to work at that mission, to, ex- to extend and, ex- and, and spend our lives in that mission, it is helpful for us to ask the question, what things does God do so that we can know what things to avoid that he, he doesn't do, things to, things to join that he does do, and things to not be afraid of if it's not something that we do, but it's something that God does. And today, we take ourselves, next week will be persecution. This week, we take ourselves to the book of Acts chapter 4 and 5, where we see negative legal opposition against the church and her preachers. And we're going to see how that is not something to be chased after, something to be sought, but it is something that Jesus no doubt uses frequently in his building of the church. So look at Acts chapter 4 and verse verse 1. We'll start in verse 1. I think up uh, behind me will not quite uh, be that verse, but look at verse 1. It's speaking of the apostles here. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the people, sorry, of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. How many churches are gathering this morning that would be free from that charge? They were teaching people how to make money and how to have great relations. They weren't arrested for that. They were teaching people how to, how to have a, 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 a fulfilled life and be committed to your cause. None, none of that. They were proclaiming what every true church spends itself proclaiming. Resurrection from the dead through Jesus Christ because of his life, death, and resurrection. That's our message. Let's keep going. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching these things. Verse 3, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. 5,000 souls saved because of the sermons that were given. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? A little bit of context, remember last week was that Peter and John had healed a man born lame that they had healed him by the power of Jesus Christ, and God used that miracle to give great opportunity for preaching the gospel. And and here's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests, the the legal cohort now questioning the apostles, how did you do that? The last guy who was doing this sort of thing was Jesus, and we killed him. Then we heard a rumor that he was raised from the dead. So how did you do this? You can hear them shaking in their boots. And then Peter, verse 8. uh, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, fine, let it be known to you all that he has been healed, uh, sorry, uh, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
What a bold man. Peter is skipped down to verse 19 as we see the response. <coughs> as they were told to shush, to stop speaking of the name of Jesus, verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the crowds of people who were all praising God because of what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing had been performed was more than 40 years old. Go to chapter 5, verse 17. As this story continues, there's a, there's a few arrests, there's a few releases. In 5, verse 17, as the, the apostles are back at it in the temple preaching, they're back at it healing people and doing miraculous signs. Chapter 5, verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go back, go stand in the temple and speak to the people with all the words of this life. Checkmate. What a move. And when they heard, heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Because when an angel wakes you up and throws you out of prison, you obey. And back they went. Look at, uh, oh, and, and so now, verse 21 continues. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and they sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported that. <clears throat> they got themselves in some trouble. Look at, verse, look at verse 27. They went to the temple, found the guys they thought they had arrested, hauled them back. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council again. And the high priest questioned them, saying... We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood on our heads. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. Did I mention that yet? Whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Look at verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles after some deliberation, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. Then the apostles left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to, be, to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. May God bless this word in our midst and to our souls this morning. Amen. When the kings and the petty rulers of earth flex against God and try and put his bride into a headlock and try and prove and flex their muscles and strength, it is all the more opportunity for God to simply make a fool and a mockery of them. The harder they flex against God's purposes, the, the greater the, the legal action, the, the harder the kings try and silence the church, the, the more laws and rules are 
filed against the church that she would not teach her hate speech and her bigotry and her exclusivity of Jesus alone being, sa- being the salvation of sinners and every other religion being born of man and leading to hell, the more the kings of the earth flex against her and against her God, God is all the more able to glorify himself in their downthrow. I don't know if you've ever, ever, uh, I use my nephews in, uh, in stories from time to time. I don't know whether you've ever arm wrestled a nephew or a niece, easier win, but I'll stick with nephew. I only have nephews so far that can arm wrestle. And, and you always let them think there's a fighting chance in the first couple of seconds. You always let them call in their younger brother, hey, look, I'm beating Uncle Tom. And you, you let them get up all the confidence so that when you slam that little n- not even fully formed wrist through the glass table and chest kick, no. But so that your victory becomes all the more evident, all the more obvious, and all the more shocking. This is not something I'm making up or noticing for the first time. This is what God himself tells us he is doing when he orchestrates opposition to the church. Do you think of it that way? Do you understand that it is in fact God who orchestrates the opposition to the church so that in the downfall of the opposition or the the non-cessation of the spreading of the gospel and the propagation of souls and churches in even closed, closed countries like North Korea, like communist China, like communist Romania, whatever it would be, so that when that happens, God is all the more glorified? God said this explicitly of his own actions in Egypt. In the Old Testament redemption story, God said to Pharaoh that for this purpose, I have raised you up. What does he mean raised you up? For this purpose, God orchestrated that Egypt might be a superpower unrivaled ever before in human history. For this reason, God raised up Pharaoh as a hard-hearted, stubborn ruler who hated the people of God and enslaved them. Yes, for 400 years it was God's orchestration that his people might be the ultimate underdog. That the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob might be the ultimate underdog. So that when the great superpower unrivaled in history, Egypt, decides to clench their their jaw, to, to tighten their grip, to flex their muscles against Yahweh, God says, for this reason I have raised you up, that my power might be made known. So that in the 10 plagues, in the 10 plagues that God sent, he systematically destroyed everything that the, the Egyptians would trust in so that he might be all the more glorified. We see it also, of course, in the, in the conquest of Joshua all throughout uh, the promised land. Political opposition to the mission was merely an opportunity for God to show himself strong. And so it is in this world that God does this to tell us and, and to testify. He did it through Joshua. He does it today that our kingdom is not of this world. Our kingdom is not sourced by power and resources and funding and strength from this world. It is utterly above this world, beyond this world, infusing into this world, breaking into this world, yes, but it, its source, its power, its type, its kind is from a king who rules on the divine throne of Jesus Christ. So, far from being the great death blow to the church that we are tempted to feel it is, legal litigation, political opposition, and civil prosecution are just other tools that Jesus uses to spread his kingdom and build his church. First of all, we've seen and we're going to see that this was the experience of the early church. To recap the story that we've just had is, is that Peter and John heal the man 
and then use the opportunity to preach the gospel of salvation in Jesus for those who repent, for those who turn away from their sin and, and give their sin to Jesus and hope in him for eternal life. And then they're arrested, they're warned to never speak of this again, stop it, we're the boss, then they're released. They keep on preaching, many more are being saved, then in jealousy this time, because they have such a big following, because the Sadducees can see their popularity waning, they go and get the Christians again, throw them in prison, and beat them. And they beat them to a pulp so that they do not go out and preach this name anymore. Or so that when they do, they're hobbling. And, and, and they're limping, and they're bleeding, and they're spitting blood every second line, and watch them then try and say that their Jesus is the almighty God who protects his church. And they do just that, praising God. They're going out of the, of the prison hall, limping and bleeding and spitting out spare teeth because they were worthy, they said. God counted us worthy. He was merciful enough to say to us, you will not just be saved, but you will also have the glory of bearing dishonor for your Lord Jesus. Isn't it, isn't it the honor of a, of a husband or a boyfriend to be able to just walk home spitting out teeth because you got punched to protect your bride? Isn't that also something that we love? Or maybe for a country, and the patriotic ones among us that would stand up for the, for the goodness of whatever our nation and receive a beating? That's, that's somewhat of a story. You, you like that. And so it ought to be about, as we think about our great God and King Jesus Christ, they received a beating and praised God and didn't stop preaching and teaching. It would be a mistake to think that these, these, these arrests, they're sort of just stopping the momentum of the church. It's sort of annoying that the book of Acts inserts that because we just, we just wish that what happened was they started preaching and teaching and everything just went swell and they never got in trouble. Wouldn't that have been better to the church's momentum? Isn't the arrest a... You know, maybe God's not sovereign. It was just Satan drew, threw a card in and God had to respond and get him out with an angel and Satan did something and God had to figure out what to do next. No. No, God has intentionally woven into the story of the church opposition from political and legal uh, 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 opponents of the church so that he can be seen as achieving a great victory. However, he is achieving multiple things. In the legal opposition and litigation and political accusation of the church, God is achieving more than just one thing. One of the things that he is achieving, this will be our, our first sort of a point here, that the first thing that he is achieving is the sanctification and the galvanization of the accused. To be galvanized is what they do with screws and bolts and nails. They take an, an, iron, uh, an iron nail, screw, bolt, whatever it be, that is, that is given to corruption or able to rust in time. And what they do is they, they dip it in molten zinc so that it now, once cooled, is unable to rust, unable to corrode, and is all the more stronger. And so it is that when God puts his church into the fiery molten zinc of political opposition and legal litigation, what he is doing is galvanizing us, making those people who are accused, who are dragged before the courts, who are thrown into prison overnight, who are, who are beaten up like the apostles. It is galvanizing them that they might be all the more strong. It is secondly a reminder from their king that their kingdom is not of this world. When Christians are thrown in prison, legally accused, all of these things, it reminds us that Jesus, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, 
It reminds us when we get in political trouble that the, the kings of earth and the lords of earth do not like that Jesus is Lord of lords and King of kings. When Revelation says that Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth, the kings on earth don't like that he's their ruler. They buck against that. Unable to haul him off his throne, what is the next best but that they would turn against the church? And that is a lesson for us to remember, to be reminded that, 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 that our kingdom does not grow primarily, even secondarily, even tertiarily. It does not grow because of political power. Rather, every opposition from kingdom governments and whatnot remind us that the kingdom is something far greater than any one geopolitical nation. It is a reminder that we are bound for a better world. How tempting it would be for us, how distracted we would be if God, God simply wove into our church story and wove into every faithful Christian's life that, that there would never be political accusation because God was protecting the growth of the gospel. How tempting we would, it, it would be for us to think that, that there's, there's great cohesion here between, between the gospel and political power. How, 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 how one hand in hand they ought to go and must go. We would be tempted to be distracted by a foreign powerless power other than the gospel in our mission. And so God sends it so that we are reminded. Psalm 2. If you read Psalm 2, it is a manifesto for all the ages. All ages are symbolized in Psalm 2, that the kings of earth and their people buck the throne of God. They buck the rule of God. They want to destroy the rule and the control of God so that they can do what they wish. And every time there is this kind of accusation against the church, we're, we're thrown back to Psalm 2, and we realize, yes, this, this is what the kingdom of men do. Until they submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, this is what the kingdom of men do. This is what we should expect and then a few verses down, Psalm 2 tells us that the kings will be toppled. Furthermore, the, the people who are being accused and being, be, being uh, uh, opposed, they are further sanctified and galvanized because the very act of being accused such increases their faith and their rest in God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul speaks of the opposition that came upon him where he was nearly killed for the faith and, the, and his preaching. And he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 and 10, through 10. He says, We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So what God does in the individuals who are under that accusation, part of it is that he is strengthening you and emboldening you for the future accusations that might come, that he's increasing your faith and rest in God. It's, it's Reformation weekend. 505 years ago today, Luther sparked that great movement. A few years later, it was 1534, and Lady Jane Grey, might be known by some of our monarchists and historians among us as the Nine-Day Queen, 
There was a Catholic queen who was, who was in line to take the throne. And in order to save England from another tyrannical Catholic queen that would undo the work of the Protestant Reformation, they, some, some ministers and whatnot rushed together and they put together this, this queen, Lady Jane Grey, and they put her on the throne and, and there she was. She was queen, but her claim to the throne was so weak. She was like a cousin of her uncle's father's son, and they're all incestuously married anyway, so she's like, you know, it, it, was an odd, it was an odd fit. She was there. Not even all the Protestants thought that she should really be on the throne, and she was only on there for nine days before she was thrown down and called a traitor against the true queen, the Catholic who came in, Queen Mary. She was thrown, and she was taken into the Tower of London through Traitor's Gate. She was kept there in the dark and the danky rooms because she was a traitor against the throne, but primarily because she was a Protestant. She didn't believe and confess the Catholic teaching. And so the Mary, uh, the Queen Mary, she sent in her greatest disputant, her greatest debater, the Archbishop. She sent him in and said, if you can, can get her to confess, look, it'll take you a couple minutes. Go in, get her to confess that Jesus Christ is actually enthroned only in the Catholic Church, that only the Catholic Church is true, that justification is not by faith alone, but good works are needed to merit salvation. Go in, convince her and she'll be allowed to be free once she's Catholic. Well, and he goes, and, and he starts his conversation, and, and saying, Lady Jane Grey, traitor, Protestant, what does God require of a Christian? And she says, well, that we would, we would uh, believe in the triune God and love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he goes, ah, so, so how do we love? Is love not filled with works? And she says, yes, the feeding of the poor, the, the attending of church, the, the, the good works towards others and towards God. And he says, oh, so, so you were saying then that faith is not enough and good works are necessary to be a Christian. And she says, no one's debating that good works are necessary for a Christian. But your question is how we become a Christian. And he says, is it not true then, according to what you said, that good works fulfill love and love is necessary for faith, therefore good works have to go along with faith to make you saved. And she says, I deny that. While to be like Christ, we must seek after good works, it is faith and faith alone in the blood of Jesus Christ alone that saves the soul from sin. He didn't think he would have such a hard time with this gal. She had taught herself Greek so that she could translate and read the New Testament. She had messaged uh, Henry uh, Bullinger, I think it was, and asked him for some tips and tricks on how to also be able to teach herself Hebrew because she was having a little bit of trouble. Did I mention that she was 14 at that time? When she's in prison being questioned by the highest theologian in the Catholic Church, she's 16 going on 17. How many of our teenage daughters would we be, would we be, would we be bold? Would we be sure that she would be able to go and answer thus to the Catholic Archbishop? She was going on 17. Uh, soon after she turned 17, her head was removed and she went to her Savior. But how her and her others who hear her story are emboldened, are galvanized by hearing this fortitude and this legal opposition against the church. <clears throat> also, <coughs> it makes us uh, uh, bold in terms of what Paul said in 2 Timothy. Speaking of when he was arrested and taken before Nero, and he's going to say a phrase here that means, no other Christians stood with me, they all ditched. Apparently, they hadn't heard this sermon. They thought political opposition was not good for the church's witness. We're going to dial it back here and let Paul go to, uh, go to court on his own. He says in 2 Timothy 4, 
At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I don't, don't, don't ask me who said it better, him or Lady Jane Grey, because I'm, I'm just not sure. She was a 16-year-old gal. I think she gets the, the, the sympathy points. But, but how that shows us that this is God's work. This is God's tool to embolden us for future messages. I remember actually um, Richard Vombrandt. If you're Romanian, you'll tell me I said it wrong. I don't care. And he was, he was arrested, and he, this is back in communist Romania, and he was a preacher and a, and a church planter and a trainer of pastors, and he was arrested, and they told him that we will kill you if you do not turn back from all the teachings you're saying, renounce Jesus Christ, and tell your, your followers to do the same. And he said to them this. He says, at the moment, my tapes of my sermons are all across Romania. I am currently a living pastor under persecution. If I deny the faith, no one will listen to my words anymore. It will become useless. If I continue on in the faith and you kill me, the tapes that are now held become a relic. The words that I speak will be sealed in my blood, and you will not be able to stop the momentum that the Spirit brings to the church. Checkmate. They let him go. He won. Off he goes. Apparently, a living preacher is sometimes better than a dead preacher because martyrdom, because opposition, because accusation emboldens the church in wonderful ways. And that is the second point that we're going to hear uh, is that I've totally lost count. I've said second like three times. I'm sure those who are counting have noticed. The next thing that it does is it emboldens other Christians, Christians who are not currently in the fray. Christians who are not under the legal opposition and we're standing back and we're watching and Paul's arrested and Peter's before the Sanhedrin and Richard Vombrand is being accused and Lady Jane Grey's in prison. We're standing back and what ought to be the effect on us is what we read in Acts. In Acts chapter 4, verse 23 and 29, what we've seen is that those, those who heard the message of the apostles after they'd been released, those who had been beaten, those who'd been arrested, Verse 23 says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And what does the church do but start praying to their sovereign Lord? And in verse 29, they pray, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. The, the thing that God does in his church when, when people, when certain individuals or when groups are under persecution and legal attack, what it should do to the church is make us pray. This is what happened in Acts chapter 12. God wanted a praying church. So who did he throw in prison? Peter, the leader of the Jerusalem church. Into prison he goes and an angel, and, and it says in, in verse 5, I believe it is, and earnest Prayer for him was made to God by the church. This is what, this is what God does because he wants a praying church. He wants a praying church so bad, he throws an apostle in prison. But that's not it. Because just before Peter was thrown in prison, in fact, he was only thrown in prison because Herod had already beheaded the apostle James. Saw that the Jews liked it, thought he'd go for a second round. How badly must God want a praying church, that he kills one of her apostles to get her to pray. And so it ought to be. 
Peter was thrown in prison and the church rightly began to pray. Secondly, the thing that emboldening, the, 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 the way that accusation emboldens other Christians, the, the non-accused, the ones who are watching, we see this in Philippians 1, verse 12 and 14. Paul, writing from prison to the Philippians, writing in chains, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Verse 14, he says, Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. How glorious that he could see that my imprisonment was encouraging the others on the outside. Because the devil may think, and we may be tempted to think, that imprisonment makes the church quiet. More lawsuits will make the church shut up. But we know, those who have the Spirit see brothers and sisters doing what we know we are called to do, which is bear the witness boldly, even under persecution. And seeing it, the Spirit within us spurns us on, throws us forward, and emboldens us. Legal action also is not just a way that God galvanizes the accused, is not just a way that God emboldens the other Christians in prayer and boldness, but, but also legal action against the church is an opportunity to preach the gospel to those who would not otherwise hear. The judges, the magistrates, the high priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, these are people who would not have heard the gospel had they not arrested the apostles and brought them in. We can think in Acts chapter 16 that God wanted to save his elect man, the Philippian jailer. So what did he do? He threw Paul and Barnabas into a Philippian jail. There are people to be reached in the dark corners of the world and society and the, and, and, and the aristocracy. There are just things we have to submit to God that he will get us into those nooks and crannies and places to preach the gospel. And sometimes it's through being arrested. We see other portions of the book of Acts in Acts 24 where Paul is arrested and he witnesses personally to Felix and Drusilla, people who are high up in the ruling, and he's able to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with them and tell them of their sin and immorality and that repentance is available and forgiveness is on offer in Jesus Christ. They wouldn't have heard the gospel otherwise. In Acts 22, at Paul's riotous arrest when thousands come together to kill him and to accuse him and he's stood up and allowed to make a defense and what does he do? He uses it as the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. So, so that legal action we need to see is actually a leverage point to open opportunities to be able to preach the gospel to people who would otherwise not hear it. We see the same thing in Acts chapter 25. I love this scene. One of my favorite scenes in the life of the Apostle Paul. Verse 23, it says that Paul was going to be charged in front of thousands, including the king of the area. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came into the hall with great pomp, and they entered among the audience with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And he confessed, and, and this is how he concludes his, his sermon. He's given an opportunity to testify, and he preaches the gospel and ends up saying, the, Christ, the scriptures prove that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Who else was going to preach the gospel to Agrippa? 
Who else was going to preach the gospel to every higher up man in the city and province? How would that happen except God arrest one of his apostles and throw them in chains before those people? We must see that it is God's tool, God's intent on purpose to use things like this to spread the gospel. And so again, Philippians 1.13, Paul says, while in chains, says, brothers, my arrest has proven to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And as he sat there in Rome in chains under house arrest, he said, it says in Acts chapter 28, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Friends, this is one of the key ways, if we look at church history, that God gives opportunity for witness and growth is that his people would not be afraid that we would not chase, but we would not be afraid of political, legal opposition. 1 Peter 4 says to be armed with this mindset that we're talking about today. It is not a truth, it is not a promise, it's not a command to go and get arrested. It's not a truth or a promise that every single one of us will be under such prosecution. However, imagine a man hiking through wolf country. And as he's going through wolf country, if he has a rifle with him, he's a wise man. If he is armed there with that rifle, he will take certain paths, make certain decisions that he would not make if he did not have the rifle. Not because he will in every moment need to use it or certainly indefinitely need to use the rifle. The point, though, is that when we are armed for all possibilities, we are able to make decisions based not on fear but on the call of God and on boldness. This is what Peter is saying to us. You may not be arrested. Some of you may never have this kind of opposition. This church may never, I doubt it, may never have legal opposition against us. But, but if we are all armed with the mindset that it is only a tool of God to expand and extend the church, then we will make decisions in our everyday life that don't see it as the ultimate faux pas of the church to get in trouble. But we will make decisions in the everyday life that are wise for the spread of the gospel, I think especially the last two, three years in Australia has taught us that the mantra of the church broadly has been, here's what I've heard. We as a church in Australia have compromised and been weak on our witness as, as a ploy to be able to get a seat at the table, okay? And the cool kids let us in, in this pluralistic society. They finally gave us a seat at the table. But, but, if you young pastors, if you bold preachers, if you steel-spined men keep preaching in such a way that get us in trouble, if you just don't go along with the rules and the laws and the mandates, you're going to lose us, our carefully won, compromised, weakened seat at the table. What the church ought to be certain of is that if the table requires compromise to be sat at, then we stuff the table, we climb up on a window, we preach to the people outside, we'll build our own table. Because Jesus is on the throne and requires not compromise, but boldness and clarity is the need of the day. That we should, every single one of us, maybe many of us not be preachers, but many of us will need to live a life where we are not thinking those in trouble are the wrong ones. Those who are at peace, peace in Jerusalem when there is no peace. Those are the real Christian 
heroes. Friends, be careful of compromise. Be careful if every decision of wisdom always leads you down the path of least resistance. Just so happens, the right decision never gets me in trouble with the world. The the apostles in the book of Acts know nothing of that kind of Christian life. They did not seek it. They were sent it by God, but they did not run from it. This is our confidence that we must have, that God controls everything so that the church might succeed in her mission, and that includes political, legal opposition. Recall this truth, even as we think of the Reformation. What would the world be? How slow the spread of the Reformation. No, let me say, the Reformation would never have occurred if there was not legal, political, intentional opposition to the church where, where the magisterial reformers, where the Puritans, where the Scottish Covenanters, where those men did not stand up and women oppose the, the mandates from above on the petty kings and thrones. If they had listened, if they had avoided that, there would be no Reformation. But we praise God that it was because what motivated them? What was, what was the burning fire in their heart was what Peter said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. The very thing that, that drove Peter was not a love of controversy, was not a love of getting arrested and beaten up, but was a love for souls and a love for Jesus Christ. Verse 12, he says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christians, know that and let it burn within you and send you out. But but those who don't believe, the reality is that at this moment, if if you have never been born again, if your life is still being lived in sin, Maybe you wouldn't say that. You'd say, I'm, I'm, I'm spiritual, not religious. I'm, I, I'm pursuing another type of, of religion. I, I know God in my own way. Maybe, maybe you've arrived at what you call scientific inquiry to say there is no God. I don't believe this. The book is nonsense. Wherever you are at, if you are not in this moment trusting Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and trusting that in his death is your death, and when you die, you will be with him forever. If that is not your life, and if, if your life is not marked by, by a turning away from the sin that you once loved, if that is not you, then you are what the Bible would say, unsaved. Unsaved. Unsaved from what? Unsaved from judgment. Unsaved from death. Unsaved from hell. You're not saved from God yet. And he will therefore punish you with everything that you were worthy of when you die. You stand at this moment condemned and an enemy. And if you meal, it doesn't matter how many times you've gone to church, doesn't matter how many times you've prayed or given or done nice things, that is not the question. There is no other way given by God by which you must be saved but this, believing in Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Have you believed that he died for your sins and trusted in it, called on him to save you? And if you would do that in this moment, you go from being his enemy to his friend. You go from being, being an outcast to being his child. You go from guilty to being forgiven. Such is the grace and the love of God. Let's pray. God, we give ourselves to you. We give our, our lives over to you. Again, this morning, we, we recommit. We, we, re, re, we are reminded of the covenant that we're in in Jesus, that, that if in him it is not just our souls that he owns, but our whole lives, all of us, our time, our, our effort, our money, our thoughts, our every single thing that is true of us is submitted to and given to and purchased by Jesus. Father God, would you take us and drive that truth deeply so that when our goods are taken, when our reputations are smeared, when our bodies are beaten, we would be able to rejoice for being counted worthy 
to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ? Would you make us, Lord God, in love with the gospel so that we would be speaking it? Would we be like Peter who says, we cannot but speak of what we have heard? Would you give to us, Lord God, the the desire to see other souls saved because this is why the church exists? Would you give us the ability, the resources to be able to extend your kingdom, Lord Jesus, and see other souls saved, other churches planted, pastors raised up, missionaries sent out? Father God, for those who are not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who think a lot of nonsense about this or who, who are convicted of their sin or who wish they could be saved wherever they find themselves on the spectrum, if they do not believe in Jesus, Lord God, would you be merciful to raise them up? Would you be merciful to give the spirit to their heart? Would you be merciful to give them a new soul to believe and love and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Father God, would you do this in our midst this morning and would you bless those who have gathered? And everybody said, amen.